Angela B. Sprague from House of Readers, reading to you chapter two uh, of the Saying Yes to Life by Ruth Valerio. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. The Archbishop of Canterbury's Lent Book 2020. Chapter two, let the waters be separated. Genesis chapter one, verses six to eight. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. My childhood memories are full of water. I was brought up at a stunning, beautiful, all-nations Christian college in England, set in acres of Hertfordshire fields and woodlands. Behind the college, at the bottom of a field, winds, winds, no, winds <laughs> the tiny river Ash, which we called Lilo Creek. We had lots of fun, uh, fun times as children, splashing about in the water on our lilos and in a, a little yellow dinghy that my mum romantically called Yellow Dawn. Nearby was a ford where the cattle crossed. Another fun place to paddle and play. The area has lots of former gravel pits and then turned into lakes and my parents bought canoes. Many weekends were spent out on the lake. I could canoe before I could swim. Probably not the f safest thing uh, looking back, especially as we never wore life jackets. I can never, rem I can never remember adventures with my brother canoeing through reed beds into hidden areas and once discovering an abandoned rusty boat on its side, which we clambered onto and explored. That childhood love of water has stayed with me into adulthood and near or in fresh water is one of my favourite places to be. My sister's house backs right onto a lake and we spent many hours there as an extended family. One of our best times recently was a scorching hot summer's day when we were all there, including my brother and his crew. We went out onto the lake in wooden rowing boats and spent the day jumping into the water my sister and I swam together for a long time through the clear water, talking and sharing deeply and putting out of our minds the 1.5 metre long pike lurking beneath us. In this chapter, we are celebrating water, focusing particularly on fresh water as we, as we will look at the seas and oceans in chapter 5. We will consider water in the Bible, see the role it plays for the people of God, both physically and metaphorically, and then look further at the 
refrain. And God said, considering what we can learn about why God made the heavens and the earth, we will then think about water today. Be inspired to notice it and not take it for granted and become more aware of the problem it faces and the part we can play in looking after it. Separating the waters. In Genesis chapter 1, 6 to 8, God speaks and calls into being a vault between the waters to separate the water from water. This vault, also translated as firmament or expanse, is the creation of the sky and sees God bringing control and order to the swirling chaotic mass of deep waters mentioned in the verse 2. The verb underlying the Hebrew for vault, orakia, orakia, means to beat or stamp, as in beating out a sheet of metal. It is the same word used by Alihu when he asked Job, can you join Yahweh? Yahweh, in spreading out the skies, hard as a mirror of cast bronze, Job 37, 18, and reflects an ancient view of the world, different from our own understanding. The process of separating out, outlined in the previous chapter, continues as they, as the watery chaos that overflows the earth is tamed and divided to create space between the waters of the ground and the water that comes from the sky. Now, there is space to inhabit and air to breathe. Alongside light, water is an essential element for life. Streams of living water. Water is a powerful symbol throughout the Bible. This reflects the fact that the Bible was written by people who were intensely aware of how precious water was and of the ever-present threat of it running out, far more so than some of us reading this. Thus, they lived with a very close day-to-day -day connection with water. This awareness, in turn, made them more appreciative of water as a gift from God, his provision for his creation. In fact, Jewish thinking says that God specifically put his people in a land with no major rivers precisely to help them remember that God was the ultimate provider of water and of all their needs. In this way, Rabbi Yonatan Narrell says, the biblical experiences with water in the desert can be understood as a spiritual training to cultivate appreciation for God's goodness. Water is a key theme in Psalm 65, which is a wonderful song of praise to the God who forgives and answers prayers and fills 
his people with good things. The whole earth praises God, lost in awe, at the amazing things he does. And the earth is filled with songs of joy. The joy comes because of God's bounteous provision. And central to that is the role of rain. You care for the land and water it. It's a poem or verses. Here they go. There are about six verses in this poem. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with corn. For so you have ordained it. You drench it with furrows and level its ridges. You soften it and showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with corn. They shout for joy and sing. These are the verses 9 to 13. He, have we lost the sense of rain as a provision from God? It is dry in the southeast of England where I live. We have had very little rain recently. In fact, the Environment Agency is warning that England could run out of water within 25 years because of rising population and climate breakdown, something that readers from other places might find inconceivable given the stereotype of England as a rain-soaked land of black umbrellas. And of course, many other parts of the world are facing much more extreme conditions, which we will reflect on later in this chapter. I found myself musing on the lack of rain as I walked around my area recently confronting the reality of my absolute lack of control over whether or not it rains. Though of course I can control what happens to the water when we do have showers and whether I use it wisely or not. Yet the scriptures are clear that water is part of God's provision for his creation, including his people. In Genesis 21, God compassionately provides for Hagar in her situation of deepest need. In this story of water injustice, we see Hagar thrown out into the desert by Abraham and Sarah. The one skin of water she was given has run out and she now sits down some distance away from her son, Ishmael, to wait for him to die. She is in tears, alone and abandoned. But God comes to her 
opens her eyes and shows her a well of water. God is with mother and son and Ishmael, grows up to become the founder of a nation of his own. Genesis 21, 8-20 Jesus tells us, that God can send rain on whom he likes, both righteous and unrighteous, Matthew 5.45. But he can also withhold rain too. In the, in the time of King Ahab, in judgment against him, Elijah announces that there will be neither dew or nor rain in the next few years except at my word. 1 Kings 17, 1. And so the rain stops and a terrible drought occurs. This sets the scene for the mighty showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Elijah's use of water pouring large jars full over the offering must have felt outrageously wasteful when the land was suffering such a famine because of the drought. But he is confident in God's promise that he would send rain again. And sure enough, as a sign of Elijah's victory over the false prophets, and more importantly of God's victory over Baal, the skies grew black. And the wind rose and a heavy rainstorm broke, First Kings 1845. The composer Mendelssohn, Mendelssohn's depiction of this scene in his oratorio, Elijah, is tremendous with Elijah sending out the servant to look towards the sea, searching for signs of rain. The tension builds up. Time after time he returns, reporting in his high treble voice, no, there is nothing. Until finally, on his seventh return, he sings tremendously, behold, a little cloud ariseth now. Out of water, it is like a man's hand. And as the orchestra picks up pace, you know the rains are coming. Water has a shadow side to it. It can bring life, but it can also bring death and suffering, whether through engulfing people, as in the flood of Genesis 7, or the Red Sea flowing back over the Egyptian army in Exodus 14, or through the earth drying up and provoking famine due to the lack of rain, or a tactic of warfare, Second Kings 3.25, or through being unclean and undrinkable. The bitter water of Mara was changed into drinkable water by Moses, throwing a piece of wood into it as God showed him to do in Exodus fifteen twenty two to 26 
This shadow side is used in a metaphorical way too, and the Psalms speak vividly of being in deep waters while the torrents of destruction overwhelm me. Psalm eighteen sixteen and 4. Whatever situation the writer of Psalm 69 is in, he describes it as feeling like the waters have come up to my neck. And he goes on to say as follows, I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. These are the verses two to three. I have no doubt that all of us reading this can think back to times when those words have been our own and maybe even now they have resonance for some of us in situations we are currently facing. I recollect sitting down to pray in the midst of a dark and painful time. I closed my eyes and immediately and vividly saw a picture of myself sinking down into deep waters, way over my head. It matched exactly how I was feeling, as my circumstances seemed totally overwhelming, and it appeared I was powerless to do anything to change them. I felt like I was drowning and would never resurface. But while recognizing this shadow side, the Bible affirms that God is in control of the waters and we will be safe. When the writer of Psalm 69 cries out to God, do not let the flood waters engulf me. Engulf me or the depths, depths swallow me up. His experience is of rescue and salvation. And he declares the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Verses 15 and 33. Another section. Come to the living water. Page 30. In the Gospels we see that the Jesus is Lord over the land. Uh, not Lord over the land. I'll, re I'll restart. <laughs> Come to the living water. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus is Lord over the wind and the waves, which obey him. When he and the disciples are caught out on Lake Galilee in a storm, Mark 4.35-41, of course they obey him. He is the one who created them, whose spirit was brooding over the waters of chaos. He is the Lord of all creation, and even when he feels like we too are, and even when we feel like we too are drowning in the depths, God is with us in his love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
are weaving together and weaving our struggles into the life at the heart of the Godhead, turning our grappling or grappling around to bring hope. Returning to the picture of me sinking down as I sat with God in prayer, he broadened the image out a step or two and I realized that my arms was held up and coming out of the water and there standing on the bank was Jesus reaching down to hold my hand. I was still in the water. He hadn't pulled me out, but I knew he was stopping me sinking down any further and clasping me securely. Jesus is at the center where we consider how the theme of water flows through the Bible. We first encounter him and water in the story of his baptism by John in the River Jordan, Matthew chapter 3, 13 to 17, Mark 1, 9 to 11, Luke chapter 3, 22 to 22, 21 to 22, John chapter 1, 29 to 34. The Jordan is, of course, key to the story of the people of God. It is the river and uh, the Israelites crossed to leave behind the Exodus and enter into the promises of God to be to be his people and to have their own land. As, the, as with the Red Sea, when they left Egypt, so here too God stops the water so all the Israelites could walk across on dry ground. Joshua 3, 4. The River Jordan, therefore, is the symbol of freedom the sign that God's promises are being fulfilled. And it is in this river that Jesus is baptised. Joshua, Joshua, the anointed chosen one, the Messiah. Through his baptism, Jesus is identified as God's beloved son and the one for whom John has been preparing the way. But Jesus will will baptise with something far more powerful than water, the Holy Spirit. It is in Jesus that the hopes of the Old Testament find their fulfilment in Jesus, the future promised by the Hebrew prophets comes together. A new creation characterized by God's full presence and the restoration of all things to his shalom. In the glimpse, in the glimpses, we are given of his transformed creation, for example, in Isaiah 11 and Revelation 21 and 22. We see a p- 
picture of reconciliation with people being reconciled to God, to one another and with the natural world. We will explore, explore this further in chapter 4, but for now, as Jesus is baptised in the River Jordan, we see him confirmed as the one who brings that freedom and peace and restoration of relationships. In our own baptism, we publicly step into that identity in Jesus as people of the new creation. Paul affirms, if anyone is in the Messiah, there is a new creation. Old things have gone and look, everything has become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Using Tom Wright's translation in the New Testament for everyone, we become Jesus' people signed up to his agenda of the kingdom of God, committed to living out the values of justice, peace and righteousness in our everyday lives. Baptism, of course, hinges on the literal and metaphorical role of water in cleansing and purification. Ritual washing was and is a key part of the faith of the Jewish people. Priests had to bathe themselves be before putting on the sacred garments on the Day of Atonement and before dressing in their ordinary clothes again. Aaron and his sons had to be washed before they were consecrated. Anyone who touched something or someone considered ritually unclean had to wash themselves in order to become clean. Hundreds of years before Jesus' baptism in the Jordan, Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Aram, was told by Elisha to wash seven times in the Jordan in order to have his leprosy healed. 2 Kings 5. Of course, this was not because there was some magical property in the water that could bring healing or because it was thought that leprosy could simply be washed away. It was not even because there was anything particularly mighty about the River Jordan itself. As Naman says, are not Abana and Far, uh, far par, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the wastes, or all the wastes, all the waters of Israel. Could I, couldn't I wash in them and be cleaned? No, this was about Naaman submitting to not just the tribal God of Israel, but the God of all the earth, the healing, liberating God, the God of creation and covenant, of exodus, wilderness and Jordan, the God of steadfast, redeeming love. Baptism then is about going down into the waters in order to be purified from our wrongdoings.
from all the things in our lives that go against the way God has created us to live. In Shalom, with his whole creation, both human and wider, and prevent us entering into the triune presence of God. It involves, too, that shadow side of water we saw earlier, as it is a type of drowning. Our old self is made dead, so that our new self might be made alive, resurrected with Christ. I am writing this on a Sunday afternoon. Having been to my local cathedral service this morning, the Old Testament reading for today sums up wonderfully God's promise of what happens to us when we are baptised and brought into new life. There is a verses here from Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27 as follows. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. It is through Jesus that the words of Ezekiel are brought to life in our lives as we submit to him and go under the water waters of baptism. As Jesus tells the Samaritan woman he meets at the well, she who has had to collect her water in the heat of the day because she has been rejected by her village. He is the one who gives living water. Whoever drinks the water I give them, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 4.14 The water that flows from Jesus continues into the vision that John has of the renewed heaven and earth. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb is the river of the water of life as clear as crystal and it pours down the great street of the holy city revelation 22 1-2 water is life and blessing and the living water that jesus offers brings blessing and refreshment right to the core of our being some of us reading this are in the privileged position of having rarely, if ever, experienced what it is like to be truly thirsty. Psalm 63 gives us an insight through the psalmist's longing, uh, psalmist's longing after God. You God are my God, earnestly I seek you, 
I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Verse 1. Can we imagine what it is like to thirst so desperately that we and can we ask God to create in us that same longing for his living water? Some years ago, the church I am part of experienced, uh, experienced an amazing time of heightened experience of God's power. With lives touched deeply and miraculous healings occurring more frequently than normal. One afternoon, some friends were at our house for coffee. And as we were chatting, it started to rain. I felt an urge to go and stand outside. And as it rained harder and harder, puddles developed along the path in my back garden. I felt another urge to lie down, so I did. Feeling somewhat embarrassed, excuse me, just ignore me, but I feel I need to lie in a puddle for a while. And as I lay there, getting absolutely saturated, asking God to soak me in his presence and drench me with his love, I was saying yes to life, to his life. In Isaiah, God calls out an invitation to us, to all of us who are thirsty, come to the waters and you will delight in the richest of fare. 55, 1-2. I wonder how thirsty for God we are this Lent. Are we simply going through the motions of what we do at this time every year? Could we come with a new expectation that God would refresh us. The Jesus who turned water into wine is with us now and delights in pouring his living water into our ordinariness of his, for his glory. Sorry for the little hiccups. Here ends the reading on page 33. Angela B. Sprague from House of Readers. Thank you for listening. Angela B. Sprague from House of Readers. My last reading was uh, some time ago (laughs) and uh, it feels rather strange to uh, not have read this uh, beautiful book for uh, nearly a week I think. But uh, we're reading Saying Yes to Life by Ruth Valeria, the Archbishop of Canterbury's Lent book selection. This is of this year, 2020. We are reading chapter two. This book is very important to me because it uh, not only reflects the beauty of our wonderful earth, but a helps us to focus on what we need to do to look after our nature again, to look after this beautiful earth. And we are on chapter two, let the waters be separated, as in Genesis chapter one, six to eight verses. We're now on page 33. 
the section is and God said so in this episode here we read what the God said or what God said enjoy in chapter 1 we looked at the Babylonian creation story and became aware of the difference between the Enuma Elish warring gods and the supreme creator God of the Bible returning now to Genesis 1 6 to 8 we see the same here too in some creation stories It is a struggle for the gods to separate the waters into the upper and lower spaces, but not so for Yahweh, or Yahweh, Yahweh. As with the creation of light, God speaks and it is so. The repetition here and throughout this opening chapter of the Bible of the assertion, and God said, let there be, reinforces the power of this statement. In Enuma Elish, the heavens and the earth were created out of the vanquished goddess, Tiamat, almost out of necessity, because Marduk needed to do something with her body. By contrast, the poetic assertion that God spoke the world into being makes a very different statement. For one, this world is not simply the afterthought of a capricious God. Most importantly though, he leaves no room for chance or for life being a random occurrence. This world and the whole universe with all its billions of galaxies is something that God has willed into being directly and purposefully. The Genesis text gives no reason why God created the world but we can affirm that it did come, it did not come out of some necessity within him. God is complete in and of God's self, in the fullness of the Trinity. There is nothing in the Genesis text to indicate that God had to bring the world into being. It is simply a fact, and he does and that he does so out of his own choice. It is worth taking some time here to explore why. Theologically, the universe exists as that will help us appreciate the different aspects of the natural world that we are considering throughout saying yes to life and therefore our motivation to look after them. The Mennonite theologian theologian, Thomas Finger talks about the redemptive activity that lies within the Trinity. He calls this the divine agape love 
and says it is an energy that is always going out of itself, giving itself for another. God is love and love finds expression in creative generosity. From this perspective, Finger says, it is appropriate to think of the cosmos originating from an overflow of this perichorotic agape. Perichorotic agape. Not sure how to pronounce that properly. God desired that others would, the others should share in the adoration, cooperation, and joy occurring in God's own life. We will explain what perichoretic means shortly. The Franciscan writer Richard Raw expresses the same thought when he says, through the act of creation, God manifested the eternally outflowing divine presence into the physical and material world. Thomas Finger goes on to connect God's overflowing, redemptive agape with another notion linked with redemption, that of kenosis, This is a Greek word that means emptying or limiting and is used by Paul in the beautiful hymn of Philippians 2 where he states that Jesus emptied himself or made himself nothing, verse 7. For finger, drawing on a long tradition of theological thought, God's act in creation of outpouring love must also have involved an act of self-limitation. Unless we view the cosmos as something that always existed alongside God, then before the act of creation, God was the only reality there was. Creation could only happen, therefore, if God opened up a space within himself, as it were. Where this could occur, but in so doing, God would limit and humble God's self, allowing creatures to exist in a free space within her. This is very deep and I purposely read that slow because there is a lot to explore in these few sentences. This act of redemptive limitation seen in the incarnation is not therefore an uncharacteristic one-off act on part of the Godhead, but an essential part of the character of God 
and another way by which creation and redemption are closely entwined. Entwined. Excuse me. Self-limiting is also, therefore, embedded in the heart of how we conduct our own relationships. The concept of creation existing within a space that God has allowed to open up within God's self is profoundly moving and blows away the idea we so easily hold in our minds that we are here and God is there, somewhere else, distant to us. This is not to suggest that creation and God are one and the same, and our Genesis creation narratives allow no room for any form of pantheism. Literally, all God, in bracket, pantheism. I believe I have, I've not come across that word, but here we goes that says that all things are one with God the Divine. But he also speaks clearly of the closeness between creator and created, the latter coming from the Word of God, being sustained and held by him, and enveloped by his ceaseless love. As Manazette Bourgeois, Theologian from the Democratic Republic of Congo expresses it. God penetrates all his creatures with his presence. This closeness allows us to speak not of pantheism, but of panantheism, literally, 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 all in God. God is in all, suffusing his whole creation with his being, and all is in God. God is in everything, and not everything is God. Thus the natural world is not divine, but it is sacred dedicated to or associated with the divine. One of the implications of this is that the created order is thus a reflection of who God is. The patriarch of Romania, Patriarch Daniel, describes creation as God's fingerprints and because creation reflects God Andrew Kayomo can look at the deforestation in his homeland of Tanzania and declares, by not protecting forests, we will be destroying the face of God whom we claim to love. When we think of God, fundamental to Christian theology is the idea of one God in three persons, 
the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is a word mentioned earlier that theologians have used since the 7th century to describe the relationship of the Godhead, perichoresis. The Greek term literally means interpenetration and speaks of the continual movement of mutuality, reciprocity and communion that flows between Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The Celts captured this dynamism in their images of the Trinity as an interweaving triangle or circle and the early church fathers imagined it is a round dance. Richard Raw picks up on this in his language of the divine dance and many of us will have someday Sidney Carter's 1967 song Lord of the Dance. Is it any surprise, therefore, that we find relationship embedded throughout the natural world? We call those relationships ecosystems, and we know that nothing in nature exists by itself. Everything exists in relationship to that which is around it and within the whole web of life. If one species is pulled out of the web, it will have knock-on consequences that can be far-reaching. And so we affirm that the existence of this world and the universe which, is, which it inhabits has not come about by chance but through God who choose who chose to create it out of the overflowing of the love between Father, Son and Holy Spirit. All creation therefore exists in him, lives and moves and has its being in him, in the space created within the Godhead to allow us to create to come to being such a thing is stunningly beautiful to contemplate and can only lead to a sense of deep awe and wonder perhaps best encapsulated in this paraphrase of psalm 8 psalm 8 Oh God, how full of wonder and splendor you are. I see the reflections of your beauty and hear the sounds of your majesty wherever I turn. Even the babbling of babes and the laughter of children spell out your name in indefinable syllables. When I gaze into star-studded skies and attempt to comprehend the vast distances 
I contemplate in utter amazement my Creator's concern for me. I am dumbfounded that you should care personally about me. And yet, you have made me in your image. You have called me your child and chosen me to be your servant. You have assigned to me the fantastic responsibility of carrying on your creative activity. Oh God, how full of wonder and splendor you are. How full of wonder and splendor you are indeed. This is where I will end this read. Thank you for listening. Angela B. Sprague from House of Readers. Angela B. Sprague from House of Readers. We are reading um, Saying Yes to Life by Ruth Valerio. These are the Archbishop of the Canterbury's Lent Book Collection 2020. We resume from page 37 of chapter 2. Chapter 2 was all about let the waters be separated as in Genesis 1, 6-8. On page 37, naming the river. We have looked in this chapter at God's creation of the vault between the waters, separating the waters below the sky from the waters above. Let us now start to think about water today. In this book, Slowly Down the Ganges, Eric Newby describes the 1,200 mile journey he made with his wife in 1963-4. From Haridwar to the Bay of Bengal, where the Ganges Hooghly Hooghly finally enters the sea. It is a wonderful, if inevitably now outdated, description of their journey through India, telling of the adventures they had and the colourful characters they met. It is too an exploration of the political and social currents shaping the river and the land it flows through. To Hindus, the Ganges is the most sacred and venerated river on the earth. It represents the goddess Ganga and was created by the god Shiva, gently lowering Ganga onto the earth to prevent her waters descending too quickly and flooding the land in order for her to wash over the ashes of 60,000 ancestors 
of an ancient king called King San Sagara. The people had been, the people had all been burned to death by, by the terrible stare of the sage Kapila, Kapila, who they disturbed as he meditated. If Ganga washed over them, they would go to heaven. The Ganges is thus seen as a crossing point between heaven and earth, a place where heaven's blessings can most readily reach earth and prayers and offerings are most likely to reach the gods. Nubai starts Nubi or Nubai starts his book with the hundred and eight names of which the river Ganges is known. Some of those relate clearly to the Hindu belief in the divine origin of the Ganges, such as Burga, Muda, Katalia, having Burgas or Shiva's head as an abode, as an abode, and Sangha, Sangata, Guaga, Samani, destroying the mass of sins of Sangata. But others relate more to the physical properties of the river and the important role it plays in the lives of the people. There are names such as Bindu Saras, river made of water drops, Hamza Swarupini, embodied in the forms of swans, Ajnana, Ajnana, Timarabu Banu, is a light amid the darkness of ignorance. Natabiti hurt, carrying away fear. Sanka Dundubi Nishvana, making a noise like a conch shell, a conch shell and drum. And Leela Lamhita Parvata, leaping over the mountains in sport. I find reading these and the many other names humbling and chastising. It hardly need, it hardly need be said that I hold a very different understanding as to how the river Ganges came into existence and yet I can see that giving it name has led to the river being noticed and acknowledged in a way that challenges me, though it has not led me to the river being looked after and protected. The Ganges suffers from immense problems caused by pollution and the environmental impacts of the many hydroelectric dams that have been built. The 108 names of the Ganges prompt me to think 
that the lakes and rivers in my neighborhood and to ask myself how much I notice and pay attention to them. If I took the time to stop and reflect, what names would I give to the lake we play in so often? Or the local canal that I walk along regularly when I need a break from writing this book? In the second creation account of Genesis 2, the human is tasked with naming the animals. We see a reflection of this in Maori culture, where every aspect of the landscape inhabited is identified by name. According to Maori theologian Rob Cooper, there is not merely an act of power, it is the placing of such natural features within the hearts and lives of our, of our very existence. Think about the water spaces in your area. What names might you give them and how might that help you notice and appreciate them more? Maini Maiwa, Maiwa is the next section on page 38. Water is a truly amazing part of our world and of what enables life to exist. Although fresh water covers less than 1% of the Earth's surface, we are utterly dependent on it for our survival. And, provide, and it provides the habitat for about 10% of the world's known species. We are part of a huge hydrological, hydrological cycle that uses the energy of the sun to create a constant exchange of water between the oceans, the land, and the atmosphere. As water moves from the earth to the atmosphere and back to the ground and oceans, particularly through evaporation, transpiration, condensation, precipitation, precipitation and runoff, water is extremely precious and the Kikuyu in Kenya say Maini Mawoa, Mawo. Water is life, a phrase we would all do well to adopt. In traditional Kikyu society, proverbs and taboos were developed in order to make sure people did not pollute water, and access routes and fords were always left open so no traveller could be deprived of water they needed. One striking example of the role of water in a particular ecosystem is given by German forester Peter Wollaben in his fascinating account The Secret Network of Nature, The Delicate Balance of All Living Things. 
Peter talks about the rivers running inland from the north-west coast of North America. If there is one thing that these are known for, it is salmon. When they are born far upriver, young salmon swim down into the ocean where they remain for up to four years, feeding and fattening up in preparation for their epic journey back to the place they originated, which then becomes their spawning ground as they swim upstream, battling the currents and the waterfalls. They have to avoid the, the bears that line the rivers, waiting for a good meal. For the bears, it's feast time and they gorge on the wonderful nutrient-rich fish. As they begin to have their fill, the bears get more picky and eat less of the fish they catch, leaving the leftovers for other creatures. These are often less bold than bears and so carry the remains into the forest. The bones and head of the salmon often get left and they gradually break down and sink into the soil and fertilize it along with the feces from the animals enjoying their dinner. All of this means that the forests along the river banks are extraordinarily high in nutrients, particularly nitrogen. In fact, it has been found that up to 70% of the nitrogen in vegetation growing in these areas comes from the salmon and in some trees the figure reach 80%. Insects living along the river can have up to 50% of their nitrogen from the salmon and levels of overall biodiversity of insects, birds, plants and animals there is increased. The relationship is so close that growth rings of trees can show scientists the salmon levels in any given year due to the presence of a particular isotope, nitrogen 15, which is found in fish and therefore also shows up in the rings. The higher the amount of nitrogen 15, the higher the levels of fish there will be, there have been that year. Without the river and the salmon it carries, the ecosystem would be significantly poorer. Water is fundamental to its flourishing. The next section on page 40 is the hub of life. The Hungarian biochemist and Nobel Peace Prize winner Albert Zent Garozzi famously described water as the hub of life. Water is its mat uh, ma mater and matrix, mother and medium. 
Water is the most extraordinary substance, particularly, uh, not particularly, practically, all its properties and anomalous which enabled life to use it as building material for its machinery. Life is water dancing to the tune of solids. But today, water is both in trouble and causing trouble. We have already mentioned the terrible uh, degradation, uh, no, degradation of the Ganges, which is most uh, populated river basin in the world and is suffering from industrial pollution, the impact of dams and too much water being taken out, predominantly for agriculture. This has serious consequences for the health of the 650 million people who dwell in its regions and also for the wildlife living in and depending on it. More than 140 species of fish, otters, gharial, crocodiles, um, turtles and many other wonderful creatures are being threatened by the degradation of the river. One of those creatures in the Ganges River, dolphin, which is seriously at risk, where used to be tens of thousands in the Ganges, now there are only about 15,000 left. The Ganges is not the only freshwater ecosystem in trouble. Around the world, our lakes, rivers and wetlands are among the most threatened habitats. And this is a serious impact on biodiversity. In Madagascar, 43% of its freshwater species are threatened with extinction. Even in the UK, over-extraction is leaving water levels too low to maintain wildlife populations. Figures for England from the Joint Nature Conservation Committee have shown that 68% of the rivers that are designated as sites of specific scientists for interest, that's SSIs, are in bad condition. Leading to the dramatic decline in wildlife. In the 20th century, freshwater fish have had the highest extinction rate worldwide among vertebrates and overall freshwater species numbers have been an 83% decline since 1970. The 83% decline means that in the last 50 years, eight out of every 10 freshwater species has been wiped out. Could you stop for a moment to allow that figure to sink in and consider how this relates to our faith in God, 
who made this world to be teeming with life. Alongside the impact on biodiversity, lack of access to clean water is one of the biggest issues facing the human population today. Managing without proper access to clean water is incredibly tough. Ungwa Sangani lives uh, or lives with her three children aged 18, 14 and 10 in Lalin, Lalindes, a village in South Kivu in the east of Democratic Republic of Congo DRC. In the past, the nearest water source was a river some distance away, to which the women of the village would make a two-hour round trip, first thing in the morning and again in the afternoon. I would have to leave home at four or five in the morning to fetch water to drink, says Ngwa. I left so early so that I didn't meet anyone else there. We thought that if there was no one there washing clothes, the water would be okay to drink. So that is why I went so early. But we had a serious problem with sicknesses like diarrhea, typhoid and fevers. Ungwa is a single parent who earns money from the produce from her fields. But the water problems gave her little time for her business. I would have to stop work early and leave my field to go and collect water because it would take two hours to go to the river, collect water and take it home. The contaminated water Angwa collect Angwa collected had to meet all the family's needs, drinking, cooking, washing, scrubbing plates, and any other cleaning Ungwa would manage. But it often wasn't enough. Washing clothes was a problem, she says, and the children were often sick. Defecation in Lalinda took place mostly in the bush surrounding the village. The few latrines were dirty and poorly maintained. Rubbish were, was left to rot around the village and hand washing with soap or ash wasn't practiced. Diarrhea and other waterborne diseases were rife with children suffering in particular. Such illnesses exasperate the problems poor communi communities are facing. Sickness often uh, affects adults' ability to work, reducing household incomes, and means that children are sometimes too unwell to attend school. Moreover, 
buying medicines to treat these diseases in an additional cost is an additional cost and while providing a short-term solution to health problems fails to address the cause so people will inevitably become sick again. These conditions perpetuate the po poverty that, that communities like Unguas are living in. I shall end this reading on page 42 and resume when the opportunity allows. Thank you for listening. Angela B. Sprague from House of Readers. Welcome to House of Readers, Angela B. Sprague. We haven't read in a while, but uh, here we goes. I am back with you today saying yes to life. Saying yes to life by Ruth Valerio. We are on chapter two. We're reading from page 42. <clears throat> It is part of the section called The Hub of Life on page 40. So, the last line that we read was These conditions perpetuate the poverty that communities like Ungwas are living in. That was my last segment. It is the combination of poor quality water supplies and inadequate sanitation facilities that, that can wreak such havoc. This is why Tier Fund takes a holistic approach to water programming, Consu considering the other crucial linked issues of sanitation and hygiene so as to ensure that supplying clean water is not tackled in isolation and undermined by other issues. Currently, 60% of the world's population, 4.5 billion people, live in areas of water stress, where the amount of water available cannot meet the demand in a sustainable way. And this looks set to worsen as demand for water around the world is predicted to rise by up to 50% by 2050. By then, it is thought that 6.3 billion people will live in water-stressed areas and 80% of them will be living in developing countries. The demand for water is increasing more quickly than the growth in population alone. Due to rising consumption, urbanization and energy needs, by far the largest share of water usage, nearly 70%, is taken up by agriculture. This matters because a lack of clean water and inadequate education around hygiene 
leads to a range of problems. Many tropical diseases and half of all mal, uh, malnutrition cases are linked to these. With children not developing properly both physically and mentally. On a social level, women and children are most impacted by not having clean water or a decent toilet. It is costly in terms of time education and income potential to have to walk so many miles to get water for everybody household needs not everybody everyday household needs and then there is the issue of safety and risk of being sexually harassed while walking sometimes women might be watched by men when they have to um, when they have to toilet in public and if they have uncomfortably held their needs in all day they risk being attacked attacked at night not having what so many of us take for granted can result in lost potential uh, and can result in lost potential and dignity ill health and even death. Next section is on page 43. Up to my knees in water. This is a, a excellent book uh, which is the uh, collection of the Archbishop of, of Canterbury's uh, Lent book 2020. Saying yes to life Ruth Valerio. So, up to my knees in water. Shortages, however, are not the only water issues that poor communities around the world are facing. One of the most vivid mem memories relayed to me by my friend and colleague, Paul, is of a visit he made to poor co uh, coastal communities in Bangladesh. The people are living in basic shacks on a very narrow strip of land between the sea and the commercial shrimp farms behind them. Their homes were largely constructed on mud and the community were continually building dikes or dikes uh, to keep the sea at bay. Paul chatted to one woman who pointed far out and told him told him that uh, that was where her first home was and that she had had six homes before the one they were now in each moving back as the sea had risen and the coast crumbled she was incredibly empowered and kept telling Paul, we don't need any help from outsiders. We can solve our own problems. The only thing we need is solid ground beneath our feet. Just give us that and we will do the rest. While they spoke in her home, the water was already around their knees. The community had nowhere else to go because of the shrimp farms 
behind them. They had retreated as far as they could, and once they lost that last strip of land, they would have no choice but to leave, probably moving to slums in the cities to look for work. This was almost ten years ago. Presumably, the land has now gone, and the community has dispersed. We cannot talk about water today without looking at the impact the current climate crisis is having and will continue to have. Earth's changing climate will affect the world's supply, water supply, in many far-reaching ways. It will influence water temperatures, weather systems and the amount of water in streams, rivers and aquifers, changes in the world's water, how much, where and when it is available, are a matter of universal concern. A 2016 World Bank report predicted that as well as ex uh, exasperate uh, exasperating, exasperating, I've come, not getting my tongue around that word, exasperating. Ah, that's not the right way to pronounce it, I've lost it. Already perilous situation, such as in the Middle East and the Sahel, climate change could cause water crises where they were where there are currently none for example in central africa and east asia impacting economic growth and pushing people back into poverty flooding due to rising sea levels and extreme weather events such as increased rainfall typhoons and cyclones is worsening and overall floods have affected more people than any other types of disaster so far this century. Floods cause many problems, not only the immediate issues of potential loss of life and the devastation of homes and businesses, but also longer term plights as crops and livestock are destroyed. Food becomes scarce and diseases start to spread. Poor households exhaust their savings, becoming more vulnerable to the next disaster. Infrastructure such as roads, bridges, power plants, schools and health centres are often badly damaged and livelihoods ruined, taking years to build up again. And the psychological impact of losing so much, including loved ones, and being so vulnerable can last a lifetime. In Australia, floods are the most expensive of all the natural disasters. In 2019, Cyclone Idai hit Mozambique, Gracia Macau, and uh, the formal First Lady declared its capital, Beira, the first city to be completely devastated 
by climate change. Increasingly warm air, which holds more water than cold, meaning more rainfalls in a shorter space of time. A drought which had left the land dry and so unable to absorb the rainfall, leading to increased runoff and a rise in sea levels made the city extremely vulnerable. In addition, deforestation, an issue we will look at in our next chapter, meant that the floods rushed through the denuded soil and formed an inland sea. Alongside floods, droughts. Drought is becoming an increasing reality for people uh, for people the world over, from Australia to China to North America to Africa. At the beginning of 2018, officials announced that Cape Town, a city of four million people, would run out of water in three months. Suddenly, the population had to reduce their water usage to 50 litres a day. The average person in the UK uses about three times that amount. A friend of mine who lives in Cape Town told me about the changes he and his family made. We stopped using tap water for watering the garden. No washing of cars and having cold showers using the water that fast comes out. Loads of us used large buckets to shower in and then used the collected water either to flush the loo or water the garden. And we had a grey water system installed using shower and bathroom sink water and washing machine water. When it's yellow, let it mellow. When it's brown, flush it down. Became Cape Town's mantra. We're now on page 45. How did the churches respond? The city met with church leaders and started to plan how they could help deliver water to the elderly and disabled who would not be able to walk to collection points or carry a 25 litre bucket. Church leaders also put together a peace plan to mitigate against large scale unrest at water distribution points. The Reverend Rachel Mash, or Mash, I think, Canaan for the Environment at the Anglican Church of Southern Africa told me, we realised there are 722 verses in the Bible that talk of water. We prepared lantern materials about water and the young people wrote daily reflections on social media. We had to learn again that water is sacred. It may come from the uh, uh, it may come from the municipality municipality but they merely clean it 
and deliver it. Water is a free gift from God. In Cape Town, the situation spurred people into positive action. And disaster was averted. Though one year's bad rain could take them back to crisis again. And along, the, along with crisis comes the recognition that Cape Town is still a city of huge inequality and many Cape Townians have always lived and continue to live at day zero every day. They are housed in shacks, collect water from a communal tap and to expose themselves to robbery, rape and or murder when they use communal toilets at night in unsafe areas. As a Tear Fund colleague who lives in Cape Town said to me, the reality of inequality and poverty in Africa is that whilst many people are worried about losing precious environmental services, there are hundreds of millions of others who have still never experienced them. We need to worry about environmental crisis, but we also need to engage with the poverty and inequality that already denies water to many citizens, meaning they live in a permanent state of crisis. As I write this, India is in the grip of a terrible drought and globally millions of people suffered drought in 2018, 3 million in Kenya, 2.2 million in Afghanistan, 2.5 million in Central America. The list goes on. There are overwhelming numbers, but behind them are individuals struggling to survive, struggling to grow their crops, to feed their families and make a living, struggling to feed their animals, struggling to keep clean. One such person is Jumana, who lives in Shad. Shad has been suffering the impacts of a changing climate which has meant that the rains have become unpredictable and there have been devastating food cri uh, crises on and off for years. Jumana has five children and has already lost one child and her father to hunger. There have been times when Jumana has resorted to digging through ants nests in 50 degrees of heat to collect seeds buried there, taking them home for, four, for her children to eat. Every mum in her village has done that at some point. Here ends our reading today. Our next reading will resume from Saving Water from page 46. Thank you for listening and uh, I hope you will join me for the next read whenever the opportunity may allow. You have been listening to Angela B. Sprague from House of Readers. Thank you. <music>